Welcome to the REI Foundation Podcast, where we cover all the steps and strategies to make your real estate dreams a reality. Now your hosts, Jason and Peely. Hey everyone, looking for lending for your next project? Well, we want to introduce you to Fund That Flip. So what is Fund That Flip? Well, Fund That Flip is fast, affordable funding for your next real estate transaction. And trust me, we know. We've used them and are using them currently for deals that we're working on flipping homes. So if you want white glove service, check out Fund That Flip for great terms, reliable service, just everything you're looking for from a funding partner. Peely, where can we find them? You can find them at fundthatflip.com backslash REI Foundation. Again, that's fundthatflip.com backslash REI Foundation. What are you waiting for? Hi, everyone, and welcome again to the Real Estate Investing Foundation podcast with Jason and Peely. Today, we have our awesome friend and just all-around amazing guy, Ryan Robson. Hi, Ryan. What's up, Jason and Peely? How is New Jersey? Awesome. Amazing. Not 95 degrees like Arizona, so, but <laughs> we appreciate you putting that out. Right, We jumped on today, and uh, we'll give you a little bit more background on Ryan. Ryan has been helping sellers sell their home for the last eight years and has averaged 100-plus flips since that time, and I'm thinking per oh. year. He's experienced a lot of ups and a lot more downs on his journey that we'll jump into today, and from these experiences, he's built a real estate empire flipping houses in three different markets. We know that Ryan's amazing. We can't wait to jump into this today and learn a lot. And uh, Let's take you back eight years. How did you get started in real estate? Oh, man. Well, it starts prior to eight years ago. So, man, I, I've always wanted to do real estate. I've got parents that are in it. And for those of us listening, when you, have, when you see your parents be successful in something, you tend to think you could do it yourself, and it's going to be a lot easier than it ends up being. And I remember sitting with my dad right out of high school, you know, deciding what I was going to do in college. And I really wanted to study real estate. They had this real estate program at the college, basically four years of getting your real estate license, which is kind of silly. But he convinced me to not do real estate. He said, you're going to learn real estate in life. Just go into something else. And I got into accounting and it was really interesting timing. So this is 2000-ish. So from 2000, 2004, I'm studying accounting. I graduate, go into accounting, and I'll keep this short. I don't mean to go into the long detail here, but the gist of it is from, from 04 to 07, as you know, all of my friends that decided to go into real estate were making, you know, 150 to a million dollars a year and had no clue what they were doing because from 04 to 07, you could just have warm blood and decide to get into real estate and make a lot of money. Yes. You know? without knowing what you're doing. So here I am getting paid 48,000 a year, locked in a back room, counting numbers and watching all my friends make all this money. And I'm just kicking myself. Like, why am I in this industry? This is you're doing so it for the love, right? All for the yeah. love. Yeah. yeah. So anyways, I, I finally convinced this guy that I knew real estate and he should hire me. And he was a hard, big, hard money lender in town. He was doing about 150 million in loans a year here in Arizona. So I got on board with him in 07 and it was a great opportunity to learn real estate. He paid me more than I was getting paid doing accounting and I got to get my own office, which was awesome. I was really excited about that. Learn, learn real estate. And then the crash hit. Oh. And it was, I mean, all my friends that were making millions and hundreds of thousands all filed bankruptcy. They all lost everything. Oh. 
And most of them aren't doing real estate today. Like you don't go through that and get back into it oftentimes, right? So before you go on, just one quick question. Did you leave your accounting job and just go over and just hope to get this hard money job? Or did you, did you keep the accounting job just in case? Or what, what was the methodology there? You know, I'm a big fan of networking. And this is a little networking secret that I use with, you know, when I'm networking with private money or whatever, is I would call people and you got to start with someone like start with like a family member that knows someone you want to get into. Like you have to have some type of connection to start, right? Look on LinkedIn, see how you're connected with people. And I would call that person I'm trying to target and I would say, hey, can I stop by your office for 15 or 20 minutes and visit with you? Instead of most people invite them to coffee or lunch and successful people that are really doing deals and doing fun things that you want to learn about don't necessarily have time to take an hour out of the day to meet with somebody that they're probably not going to get a lot of benefit from, right? And is probably just looking for a job. And that approach has really worked well for me. That 15 or 20 minutes always turns into an hour, most of the time, because you have to be able to talk the talk and impress them. And that's a whole nother lesson we can go into. But at the end of every conversation, I never ask for anything in that conversation. It's always just tell me more about yourself. I want to learn from you. I, I, I see you as a mentor. I just want to ask you some questions. I always ask, who do you know that either may be looking for somebody or who do you know that I should talk to to learn more about this subject? And they'd rattle off two or three names. Then I would call those people and say, hey, John Doe told me that I just talked with him. I met with him. And he said, you're the guy to talk to about this. And I get that reference and it just, your network starts to grow really fast. So I did that and that's how I got connected to this hard money lender. And somehow he was convinced that I knew a lot more than I did, which was awesome that he thought that and took a chance on me. I mean, I really didn't know much about real estate, even though I grew up in it. You know, you don't really know until you do it, right? Yeah. Yes. And yeah, the crash hit. You asked me how I got involved in real estate. So that's it. The crash hit. And I remember the day when he got shut down, the guy I was working for by the Department of Financial Institutions, not for anything bad he did, but at that time, it was a really scary time for people that don't remember all the blame for the market. A lot of the blame was being put on the banks and you know, they were finding the federal and state governments were looking for anybody to blame for the crash, right? So they, they targeted him, shut him down for six months. He had to go through a whole deal and he ended up okay. He wasn't doing anything wrong but they wanted to, you know, publish something in the paper that, you know, we found some bad guys kind of a deal. Well, when, you're, when your boss gets shut down for six months and you're in a crash or anyways, and he's having a hard time paying you because we're not doing deals, you know, you kind of end up losing your job, right? Like there's not much, you're, you don't have a choice. So I had never done this, but I took about a week or two. I'd been working really hard up to that point in my life. It took about a week or two. I had about 50 grand in savings. And I was living the dream, right? I was like, man, I have, I have all this money in my bank account. I could just retire. And <laughs> after about two weeks of sleeping in and working out and just hanging out, I was single back in those days when you could do that. I mean, I think one day I watched every college football game from about 8 a.m., the pregame, all the way up to the very light game. And I never left the couch. I ordered pizza. When they knocked on the door, I said, come in. You know, I paid the guy from the couch and I just watched football all day long. It was one of the best days <laughs> of my life. You can't do that when you're married anymore. They, your wife doesn't do this thing. Because marriages don't last very long for people who do. So, yeah, it's true. No, it was this beautiful couch that my wife made me get rid of. She took a black light to it. And anyway, so 
there I was just kind of hanging out on my couch and I got bored. Like I was just like, I got to do something with my life. And this is when kind of loan mods were going. If you guys remember how big loan mods were back in the day. And I, I got into flipping houses through short sales. And I did that for a long time. So to answer your question, I'm, I'm, I'm going and going here, but that's how I got started in real estate is I went through that process. I'd lost my job and had just a little bit of money in the, in my bank account and decided, you know, I need to go do something with it. And nobody was hiring. You couldn't find a job during the crash. So how did you first do that flip? Like, so you just said you just, you like, you, you pushed it, you just jumped into flipping houses. Like how did that first one happen? Like you just were like, what do you, where'd you find it? And what, what was the action step that made you do it? And how'd you learn how to do it? Oh man, just meeting and talking to anyone that I saw that was currently doing it and how they did it. Yeah. And back in those days, it was pretty easy to find somebody that was underwater that knew they were so far underwater, they couldn't make their payments. I mean, everybody was dealing with those issues back in those days. So motivated sellers were pretty easy to find. So it was more just putting the fillers out there and letting people know that you worked with motivated sellers. And my first deal, I think I bought it for, I should know these numbers better, for 48,000 and flipped it for like 62. I mean, not a great deal, but you know, there was a lot of Canadian money in the market back then and they bought that house and you know, I was like, Hey, that was fun. Yeah. And you know, I, I think that first year in 2010, I did like 20 flips. And then ever since then, it's just been a hundred flips a year, just kind of rolling. So tell me a little bit about going from not doing any flips to doing 20 flips in one year. Most people like they'll start, they'll do one, maybe two, and then maybe next year they'll ramp up or maybe not. So how do you have, how do you go from zero to 20 in one year? It's a, a good question. It's the reason why a lot of people wholesale is because again, I started with $50,000, right? And you know, I found I was never a wholesaler, but instead of wholesaling, I would try to find buyers prior to me buying the house that I could flip the house to and I could close and flip it to them that were paying retail. So I was essentially wholesaling in a way, just kind of a different way of doing it. Um, back in those days, you, you couldn't, you, people did it, but you shouldn't have flipped short sales, right? I actually closed, put a little value into them and sold them to end buyers. And it's a tough question, Peely, honestly. I mean, it, how do you the go from 20 to 100? There, there's a lot of uh, bad and fun and, rough memories during those times back in the day well if you talk about maybe just uh, even on the funding level so you have fifty thousand dollars so you're going out there using hard money and you found some private investors what, what was a model that was able to allow you to ramp up so quickly this is advice that i give a lot of people i talk to people get so caught up on the interest rates and the points that you're paying and the equity that somebody gives i mean i found people to I was making a hundred grand on this flip and the guy said, I want 36%. And I could have said, that's outrageous. Nobody pays 36%, but I didn't have anybody else to fund the dang deal. Yeah. And I could make a hundred grand less 36%, which I was flipping it in about three or four weeks. So, you know, he's only going to get so much money for that 36%, right? It was like three or four grand or whatever the numbers turned out to be. But so many people get caught up when they're getting started on, well, I know someone getting 8% in one point and I know somebody that's getting, you know, and you, you think, and that money exists out there and you should always chase the, 
the cheapest money you could find, right? But don't get caught up on that when you're doing your first deals. Like just start doing deals and get that ball rolling and don't worry about giving up some of the profit to get started. That's great. So Good advice. if we ramp up and we go forward towards today, you're talking about a hundred plus deals. Tell us how your, how your business looks today. Can we give us some clue into your systems? Woo. Business today. So I am, my goal this year is to do less deals and better deals in more markets with other people. So I don't want to focus on one market with a hundred deals a year. For those of you doing that out there, you know, this struggle when you have a hundred flip business, hundred flip a year business in one market, there's a lot of construction people to keep busy. You really can't predict if you're going to buy 10 in one month or six or 15. And when it goes like this and you're flipping, you know, your contractors, keeping them busy. If you don't keep them busy, they go to other jobs. Like yep. your subcontractors will just go somewhere else if you don't have work for them that week. So it's consistency is hard in our market and, and, I, and I, in the real estate flipping market, right? Stay consistent. So my goal is to not have such a big business in one market where there's this behemoth of a business where when the market slows down, I mean, some deals, some years I did 120 a year and some years I did 70. I mean, that's a 50 deal difference. And when you have an organization to support 120 and you go down to 70, all of a sudden your operating costs, your fixed costs and your variable costs just go way up, right? Yeah. Like they pretty much stay the same whether you're doing 70 or 120. So that's why I'm trying to diversify a little bit into multiple markets and hit more doubles and triples instead of a bunch of singles. What kind of deals are you looking for? What, what signifies now a good deal to you? Is it, are you looking pretty for a standard spread, formula? Cash on cash, how quickly you can turn it. Yeah, I use a really simple formula. And the reason I've converted to this formula is when you start to hire people, especially acquisition managers, for some reason, they don't understand the idea of, well, just take the ARV, multiply it by your closing costs, which would be 95% because we have 5% closing costs, then subtract out the interest. And here's how you calculate the interest. You take the purchase price times this, divided by 365 times this many days, then subtract out the fix up. And here's how you estimate fix up. Like it's this really, really tough equation for them to understand. So the equation I use is I just take ARV and multiply it by 75% and I subtract the fix up and that's the purchase price. I mean, it's a very simple way to get to the math. I know at the end of the day, if I'm buying 75% or less on our deals, we're making the kind of money that I expect to make for what we're doing. That's great. And you're having so many leads come across. What, what is a lead driver for you? Are you finding them across a bunch of different spectrums? Are you literally doing mailing? Or what's, what's the way that you like to push out there to really just fill your pipeline? You know, it's market specific. Everybody always wants that magic bullet in their market. So in Phoenix, I'm really heavy on PPC. And some of my other markets, I'm really heavy on postcards. In another market, I'm really heavy, heavy on letters. So it's really market specific. And then, I mean, there's just so many details in that of what's the wording, how many times does your phone number need to show up? Is there two, is your show up two times or three times? And that sounds like a silly thing to talk about, but you know, do you put your website on the postcard? Do you not? And all of those factors really change your response rates. How niche is your list? 
So, you know, I really focus based on the market, you know, in Phoenix, if you, if you send a postcard and you get a call, I'm not joking. There's a minimum of 30 postcards from competitors when you show up and you're like the 15th guy on the list they've called. Right. So I PPC works really well because I could t- I could be the first one in usually and get the deal locked up before anyone else does. That's great. And so talking to that, if it's a new investor out there, it's just like, wow, there's all these different types of marketing. Like, what do I do? Do I just try them all or should I pick one and just see if it will work out? What would you suggest to someone just getting out with their marketing? Get a mentor, understand your market and understand what marketing's best in your market. Okay. Let's talk a little bit towards markets. So you're moving into these other markets. What's, what makes another market outside of your core market attractive to you to go into? I'm not a huge fan of large markets. So flipping in Houston, Dallas, some of the Florida markets, and I don't know those very well, some of the bigger markets over there, Obviously, a lot of the big California markets like San Diego, LA, Inland Empire, even Salt Lake City, you know, Colorado, some of the markets, Colorado, Denver, those markets I've kind of rattled off. I don't want to discourage anybody in those markets. If you're in that market, you could figure it out. But when I'm opening up in a new market, I stay away from those because it's, it's playing, the best analogy I can use is you're playing in the, um, the NFL in those markets. And when you go to a mid-sized market, it's more like college. And when you go to a small market, it's like playing in high school. Right. And you, there's just, you know, I've got a friend who he's in a market that is close to a big market, but it's in like a suburb of a big market where, and he sends postcards and I'm not joking. I don't think he's ever shown up and had another competitor he's competed against. Wow. So, you know, he's like, he posts something the other day on this board and he's like, I've got my, my, I have two acquisition managers and they're doing 30 appointments a week and we're two weeks out on appointments. And I'm like, man, that's a good problem to have. But so he just does postcards because it works in his market. Right. So when he shows up to an appointment and somebody needs to sell today and he's like, here's an offer at 50% of value minus fix up. And the person says, well, I want something higher. Well, we're the only guys in town. Okay, I'll take your offer. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just that easy. So I like those smaller markets. There's some challenges with those smaller markets, obviously. It's not just gravy. But it's easier to get started in a market when you're about 200,000 to 600,000 in population. Well, let's yeah. talk a little bit more about you expanding into these markets. So why are you expanding into these markets? And how are you expanding into these markets? So I started this partnership program this last year and I, you know, you asked, it's an interesting question and my answer really to how do I choose a market? I work backwards. Most people, and you guys know a little bit about some of my business models, which we can go into later on another podcast, probably it's a long, long conversation. I tend to think backwards the way most people think. And most people, when they expand, they think, what market do I want to go to? right? What's close to my house? What, you know, what does the population look like? Yada, yada. I actually look for the person that I want to invest in, in that market. And sorry, not even that market. I look for people that I want to invest in. And if I'm comfortable with them and I'm excited about investing in them, 
then I decide if I want to go to their market or not. Does that make sense? So most people will go to the market first and then try to find the people out, the people problem next, which is how do we hire? How do we manage this from afar? You know, how do we get people on the ground in this market that I'm excited to move into? And you realize that the market's the easy thing to choose. The finding the talent and the people is the hard thing, especially from afar. So my partnership model is at least for the last, what are we at April? Last four or five months has been working really well. It's great. So I, you know, my, my most successful one is in Albuquerque right now. I found a, a guy there who was working a full-time job. He was doing maybe five flips a year. And he was just, I mean, the guy had listened to every podcast in the world. Probably, I'll probably get a text from him in a couple hours. Like, Hey, I heard your podcast <laughs> and I won't use names. I don't want to put them on the spot, but you know, I brought him on. I said, dude, I'm going to give you, I'm going to open up my books and show you the inside and show you how to do 30 flips this year. And that's a big deal from him to go to five to 30. He doesn't have the capital to do that. So we take some of the capital he has, I fund the rest and you know, there's some sacrifices involved. He had to quit his job to do this. And it was a hard thing for him, right? Like his wife was a little scared, like we're taking risks, but it's a lot less risky when you have somebody like me that it isn't afraid to jump off the cliff because I know the parachute's going to open. Where most people, when they're standing at that cliff and they're watching other people jump off, it's like, yeah, but those are your parachutes. Like, I don't know if my parachute works, right? So I basically strapped him on, obviously spider way, right? Like face to face, you know, strapped him on to me and we jumped off together. Very, very manly that way, right? <laughs> and I, I force him to jump off that, that cliff and I force him to, I force the strong word, but you know what I mean? And, and I know what parachute, when to pull the parachute and what to pull it, you know, to give you that analogy. So it's been very successful. We're closing four on average four deals a month in his market. So that's going to be 48 deals this year, which is huge for him. Going from five to 48 is a big deal. And just having that experience. So that, that's been my model is to invest in people. And he's truly running the company. I, I'm, the, I'm the money. I help with the marketing. I help with the sell of the houses. And then I manage the whole process of you know, the sounding board to say, I want on this appointment. Here's what happened. What do you think about this? Can you help me comp this deal? Yada, yada. So there's so many different ways we could take this. We could yeah. take this to the quitting job spot. The other one, I, I think I'll ask one question, but then I want to jump back into where you're going with this program is that how do you, when is the right time? Cause people want to quit their job and sometimes they just, they're like, I'm out and they don't really have a plan. They're just like, now I'm going to do house flipping. So for people out there that are thinking about quitting their job, should they make the jump? What's a, and it's not an all person question, but when do they make that move into something that they know can be a more viable option for them? Yeah, man. Like I had a guy contacting me this morning. Ironically, I was trying to hire him for a project manager job and I started talking to him and he's like, well, I want to do flips on the side. And I'm like, well, that doesn't really work for me, right? Yeah. So we got into an early interesting conversation. He's coming from Salt Lake and he's moving here to Phoenix and he wants to start flipping houses. And I just very nicely tried to explain to him like, dude, it, it again, like you're, you're jumping into the NFL, right? Like how do you, you got to understand it's super competitive out there. Buying at 75% takes a lot of magic to make that happen. And it's just hard. So I, if I had a full-time job, you've got to balance this, like, when do I have enough reserve to really quit and pay myself for maybe three to six months 
And am, am I in the type of industry that I could go back to if I had to, right? Like what type of job you have matters. Are you hireable with another company if you take six months off to try flipping and it's not working? But you gotta give yourself at least six months to see if it's working. If, you're not, if it's not working after two months, you're just not giving yourself long enough. So have enough money to be able to market and to be able to live for six months, which tends to be a lot of money sometimes based on how much marketing and what market you're in. Right in Phoenix, I have spent 30 to 50 grand a month to market. In Albuquerque, I'm spending 10 grand a month and we're getting almost the same amount of deals. So again, there's some more specifics to your question that are hard to answer without knowing those. It gives people good, good things to jump off on, right? Because people are very quick to be like, I'm just going to quit my job and without really having a plan to act on. And you, you really got to think about, okay, well, day one, you have no money and you're going to get a deal and that deal is not going to turn over in a, in a night just into magic. Money. Oh, I mean, we're, we're four months into our deals. We're buying four months in Albuquerque. We're four months in and we haven't sold anything yet because it took some time to market. It took some time to get our first deal and it took, it's taken time to do the construction. And I mean, I think we're getting our first one listed this month and it was a big, our first one happened to be a really big construction deal. I mean, we're probably not going to see money on that till mid May. And it's going to be a good chunk of money. I mean, it's a fifty, sixty thousand dollars profit deal. But it, you know, that's the funny thing in this business. I told someone this today. I was talking to. I'm pretty wealthy on paper, but if I were to show you my bank account, you're going to think I'm poor. It's because we're in such a capital intensive business. Like every house you buy and all the fix up it takes and the operational expenses, it's expensive. And if you have money sitting in your account, you're probably not buying enough houses, right? Yep. Exactly. It's always like so funny. We're just looking at our yeah. account. Where'd I go? Yeah, well, well, it's in this house and that house and these house and here and there. And we got this in the contract and this and yeah, yeah. You no, know, it's that's that's part oh, of the game. Pay people. Oh yeah, and pay people <laughs> and run the business. Yeah, so let's talk about more about this program you have. So and let's kind of tie it in with uh, Jason's uh, question about people. So when you're looking for people, what kind of people are you looking for? Because I like to tell, like we like to tell people that when you're just starting out people that are going to invest with you are going to invest in just that you not your real estate experience because obviously if you're new you don't have any they're going to be investing in you so your program definitely speaks to that so what are you looking for in people so the program's called next level flipping and it it's really called that i, I somehow was able to buy that website i don't know how it was available like a few months ago too it's a crazy thing crazy. and i don't know why why it was available but anyway the the reason it's called that is because i'm not looking for newbies you know i don't want to have to hold your hand the whole time i'm looking for somebody that you've at least done five deals in a year you've flipped some houses you understand this the work it takes to actually hire a contractor deal with all that jazz and i really look for people that are good at meeting with sellers i could teach you construction I could put processes in place that you're not using. I could help you find materials cheaper than you're doing them. I could help you hire general contractors and do standardized pricing. Again, we could have five podcasts just on that subject, right? I could do all that with you and help you grow in that area. But what I, have, what I have a hard time teaching you is how to do sales. So you have to be really good at sales, which is ironically funny that I went into accounting because when I say I love real estate, I really love sales. Like one of my favorite jobs I've ever had was selling fish tacos at Rubio's. Nice. I love finding people that had never eaten a fish taco and like explaining to them why they should pay for this fish taco and eat it and how it's going to be the best experience in their life. 
I love standing at booths and when people walk by grabbing them and convincing them to buy products. Like I just love that interaction with people and, and selling. So I'm looking for people that understand sales. They understand motivated sellers. They understand the process of rapport building, you know, labeling motivations, helping people understand why there's, let me clarify this, helping a seller understand and come up with the answer to why they sitting there is the right answer for them. And that's a weird way of saying that, but you want the seller to say, yeah, yeah, you're the guy. And, and I, I should sell you my house because of this. It's like, you've got to convince the seller to sell you their house. Does that make sense? Like turn the tables Don't walk in and sell them on the benefits, get them to sell you why you should buy their house. See the difference? Yeah. So anyways, big picture for you. I keep diving in these rabbit holes. I'm looking for people that understand motivated sellers, have experience meeting with sellers. You know, I talked to a group the other day and they just buy in the MLS and that's cool. But the best deals out there are directly to sellers. And if you don't have any experience doing that, you're probably not right for this program. Again, not a ton of experience, but you have to be good at it. Yeah. I love that. So in all the business that you're doing right now, what, what's a challenge that you faced and, and what did you learn from it? Ooh, trying to do too much myself. Um, you know, I tend to think that I do everything better and faster than everyone else. And that's probably not true, but you tend to think that as the owner sometimes. And it's mostly because your desire is a lot higher than most of the people you hire, right? You, you care more. But that's a big challenge that I've faced over the years. And it's something that I've had to learn and grow in is, you know, really delegating that work to the right people, finding the right people that are loyal. Like this project manager guys, the fact that he says he wants to flip on the side, you know, he's already told me that up front. It's like, I don't, some people's answer is going to be, I'll tie him up in a contract and make sure he can't do it legally. Yeah. But like, are you really going to sue him and spend 150 grand on attorneys and fight each other for two and a half years in a lawsuit? Probably not. It's not worth your time. Right? So really hiring loyal people, people that will grow with you and people that you could trust to hand them their buckets of water and have them carry their own buckets. Because if you're constantly carrying people's buckets in your job, you're just going to be overwhelmed yourself. Got it. You're just preaching to the choir right now. Yep. It's true. <laughs> you have to, you have to you, do it to, to figure out that it's the wrong thing to do. Yeah. You know? how, so. do you, how do you find those people? How do you find those people that will carry their own buckets? Uh, you know, it's interesting. It, it's really, hiring people that will take ownership and that are likable and coachable coachable is the number one out of all three of those maybe taking ownership is either right there with it or not being likable that just has to do with fitting in your culture right like if you're in new jersey and you've got this really hard a culture like you guys do there you know maybe you hire those kind of people yeah. but you know you guys have you guys have a persona to keep up over there uh -huh. it's true trust me it's true yeah. Here in Arizona, we, we need softer people. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, you know, how do you find those people? It, it's interesting. So out of those categories, you, most people, I don't want to say struggle. I say most people, most employees, let's just call them, whether they're independent contractors or employees, most people working for you that fail 90% of the time, it's a failure of leadership and not a failure of the person. So I don't want to sit here and blame 
everyone that I've hired that's not worked out and say, well, they didn't take ownership and they didn't take, they didn't carry their own buckets. And it's really easy as an owner to do that. And as a, a boss, but when I like, as I'm reading more books and, you know, learning more about leadership and management, man, a lot of the issues are my issues, right? It's like my five-year-old son that has issues and certain things as a five-year-old does, you tend to want to blame him, but really it's the parenting most of the time and me not being a good parent, right? Like mm-hmm. a very similar analogy there. So how do you find those people? Oftentimes you could develop them. You just have to have the right processes in place, right roles. Do they understand their roles? Do they understand what their buckets are? Do they have lead goals that get them to where you're trying to get them to? Do they understand all of those processes and the tools that you're trying to give them? And are they using them? That kind of stuff. No, I get it. What are, what are we doing as leaders to either help them or hinder them in their prospective jobs? So yep. if you had to go out there and battle Tyrannosaurus Rex, what kind of weapon would you use? Uh, my five-year-old son, he, he uh, knows a lot about dinosaurs, so I think he would be my best weapon. He'd get in there and figure yeah, out. You have an sure. Yeah, we, we, we play dinosaur fights sometimes, and he usually wins. So. How does he win? Uh, he, he uses uh, brute force. <laughs> nice. We'll go with brute force. I'm yeah, a, a lot, which is a lot of dad, dad, stand there and close your eyes and I'm going to tackle you kind of force. <laughs> Cover in privates and face and yeah. keep my eyes squinted a little bit and making sure I don't get hurt too much. And, I mean, some of it's like jumping off the top of our bed. I wish I could take you on a tour and show you. I mean, it's a pretty high top of the bed that he jumps off and lands on man, like the other day I'm laying there and he jumped off and landed on my stomach and I was not ready for it. I didn't even know he was coming. Like that is not a fun thing to experience. No. It's not. It's not. It's not. <laughs> so, yeah. so take take the advice from a five-year-old. If you're ever in a situation where you have to battle Tyrannosaurus Rex, jump from the top of the bed onto Tyrannosaurus Rex. not looking <laughs> onto Tyrannosaurus Rex's stomach. Done. Best answer ever. Yeah, love it. That's good. They get better and better. So, good. Well, let's bring it back to uh, to real estate and to uh, sort of mindset. What is your big why? So when I first started, my first year, my goal, I had a, uh, I'd always dreamed of driving a Tahoe. Like all the cool kids in high school drove Tahoes. So I thought, you know, someday I'm going to have a Tahoe. So I bought a Tahoe for like $15,000. I was on top of the world. I owed like 12,000 on it. And my first year goal, again, I'm single at this point, is to, I'd already accomplished the goal of staying on a couch a whole day and watching football. So that was out of the way. My, that first year goal was to pay the Tahoe off. I wanted to make enough money to do that. And I had that kind of goal in mind. And you know, when you work towards it, you're paying it down. It kind of gives you this, like, you could see the value there, right? And that was my whole goal you know, I, I did so well that first year and I got married. My next year goal was to buy a house free and clear and have no debt. So like, you got to remember, like I had just watched my friends all go through bankruptcy and lose everything. And a lot of my, like I, I would go to this coffee shop, this networking deal. And these guys are hundred millionaires, some billionaires sitting around this table that I got into and were able to like be a fly on the wall and listen to these guys. And I'm not joking. The conversations went from who's making the most money and bragging about that stuff to who's losing the least. Like that was the mentality in 08 and 09. I mean like who just sold their plane and who just had to sell their, you know, it's a funny joke, but like, man, it was hard times. Right. So man, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. 
Where, where was I going with that? I, I had a point and it was big really wise. big wise where, where, where you wanted in life. Thank you. So I'm in this mindset, kind of watching everything. And I'm like the outside looking in, kind of starting to make money. And I'm chasing the market down, right? The market's dropping as I'm making money, which is hard to do in real estate. And my why was always revolved around debt and staying out of debt to help my family. So my family's really the end goal, but my why kind of then that, that step to get to that goal is to get out of debt and not have debt. And I really pushed hard. It's so I learned that when my goals revolved around something that was important outside of work, like family or maybe travel or time or whatever your goals are, it doesn't have to be family and kids. If you don't have that in your life, it could just be other things you want in your life. Set something that's kind of fun or exciting outside of work and dive into how you're going to get there doing that. Nice. Thank you for that. If someone's brand new to real estate, what's an actual step they can take today to start on the real estate journey? Don't be afraid to ask people that are successful for advice and don't be afraid to reach out without being annoying. Right. But you know, I, I get Facebook messages from people all the time and I give them my cell phone number. I'm like, just text me shoot me a text. I'm happy to talk to you. Come in and visit my operations. I'm happy to sit down with you when you come in town to show you how we work. I just don't, most people have been where you are recently that have had success. And most people are willing to take a few minutes out of their day. You know, that 15 minutes I talked about earlier to just give you some advice and help you. Nice. So do you have a morning routine? Yeah, morning routine. Yeah. You know, man, I've been trying to wake up at 5, 5.30 and get work done, but it's weird. It's like the earlier I wake up, my kids keep waking up earlier. Uh -huh. So <laughs> I, hit the gym. Yeah. I hit the gym for about 30 minutes, and then I try to sneak into the house without waking anybody up and um, get some work done before the kids wake up. And then I love spending time with the family in the morning, getting them ready for school. I only have one kid in kindergarten, so I, I take my kid to kindergarten every morning. Love that. So I get to spend from about seven o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock with him, getting him ready, taking him to school. So that's part of the routine. I try to get an hour or two of work in before that. And then at night, I'll oftentimes get an hour or two of work in after that. Um, I don't have TV. I got rid of the TV this last year. It's been a big change in my life, helping me spend more time. And I got some really good family advice um, in one of the meetings I went to recently. You know, they talked about when you're really busy, your kids, when they, when they come in and, you know, need something from you, the more often you shoo them away, the more they get conditioned to stop asking you. Yeah. And it, it's a really interesting, you know, we're oftentimes on a phone call or on a podcast or on doing a deal or whatever. And our kids are pulling on our shirt and our court, you know, Hey, I need this. Or can you do this? Can you do that? And it's, it, as a parent, you get used to kind of pushing them away and it, you, you don't realize what's happening in their head, which they just get conditioned that don't bother dad or don't ask dad for help. And, you know, when they become teenagers, I want them to feel comfortable coming to me, right? Like I want them to have that years of experience of me always stopping what I'm doing to smell the roses and to help them, even if it's for a few minutes, right? And just answer their question. Cause sometimes that's all it is. Like I peed my pants, right? Um, hopefully it's not poop. <laughs> yes. So what amazing advice just right there. Just uh, 
in, in the parenting aspect, because I know the parents out there, you know, when we get busy, that's our first thought, like, let me just get this done, and then I'll be right with yeah. you, especially if it's like, your son wants to play blocks or show you his like latest creation. But that's, that, that was amazing. Yeah. So Ryan, this has been incredible. And uh, a little recap here. So after four years as an accountant, Ryan jumped into hard money and uh, found the light when everything crashed and he was going to jump into real estate doing 20 deals his first year and a hundred deals moving forward. And he's loves to not deal in the NFL, even though Phoenix pretty much is. And he's choosing markets that are more like high school these days and keeps it simple using ARV times 75% minus the fix up. And from that, he's been partnering by bringing on new investors and his next level investors have been doing about five flips a year and his next level flipping and are just looking for people that are really solid at sales and got some amazing whys and has gotten rid of his TV to really just make the most of his time. So Ryan, thank you so much for today. And what is the best way for our listeners to connect with you? Whew. Probably through, I'd look me up on Facebook is probably the best way to start. Um, my email is ryan at azbestoffer.com if you want to shoot me an email. I'm more active on Facebook than I am on email. So I'd look me on email. I'm friends with you guys on Facebook. They could probably find me through that. Awesome. And we'll definitely put links to Ryan's Facebook and his email in, in the, the show, show notes, notes and yep. in our little Facebook commentary. That's great. Ryan, right, thank you so much. This has been absolutely incredible. Good luck. I appreciate the time and we'll see you soon. See you soon. So Thanks, guys. <laughs> this is the Real Estate Investing Foundation podcast with Jason and Peely. Thank you again so much to Ryan and thank you to you all for listening. We are so grateful. So fun that flip. You've heard of him before. We had the founder, Matt Rodak, back in the show of episode 139 and some exciting news happening over at Fun That Flip. They now have funding for your two, three, and four family rentals. So if you're looking for fast, reliable, easy to work with funding for all of your real estate needs, and now for two, three, and four family rentals, where can we find them? You can find them at fundthatflip.com backslash the REI foundation. Again, that was fundthatflip.com backslash the REI foundation. Thanks for tuning into the REI foundation podcast. Check back next time for more awesome tips and strategies to launch your new you in real estate.